strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm actually going to tell you a story that I learned from Doctor Who. Which one? Um, If you watch the show, you know that they often travel through time and space and drop in on some of history's most amazing people. When they came upon this lady, I had never heard of her. But I knew that it must be an interesting story. When we think about the heroes of World War II, it's easy to let our minds think of the men storming the beaches of Normandy, or the paratroopers being dropped behind enemy lines, or even perhaps the men that liberated the concentration camps. But there was an entire war taking place in secret during this time, utilizing civilians with certain skills to assist in the war effort. But even knowing that there were clandestine operations going on behind enemy lines, Noor Khan was definitely not the image that you would think of from a British secret agent. Her name is Nora. Noor. N-O-O-R. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. Noor. Noor Inayat Khan was born on New Year's Day, 1914, in Moscow, to an Indian father and an American mother. Whoa. Khan's father a musician and philosopher, was also known as Inayat Khan and was in Moscow at the time on an extended stay with his group, the Royal Musicians of Hindustan, who had been invited to perform there in Russia. So her mom gave birth in Moscow? She was yes. American? She, yeah, she was from, I believe, New Mexico, married to an Indian man. Mm-hmm. And ended up in Moscow somehow on his like traveling group. Yeah, he's there with his musicians. Because her father's a musician. So technically, this woman's Russian. Technically Russian, born to an Indian and American in Moscow. Bananas. That is crazy. (laughs) She was also a direct descendant of Tipu Sultan, an 18th century Muslim ruler of Mysore. So technically, she was a princess and was born into royalty in India. Oh, Princess Noor. A Muslim whose father was a Sufi preacher, a writer mainly of short stories, and a musician who played the harp and the piano. I mean, so she's definitely raised in a super liberal yeah. kind of family I mean, for the time. it's like sort of hippie, sort of not. Yeah. Sort of gypsy, sort of not. <laughs> but then she's a princess, sort of not. <laughs> sort of not. Um, so, right, I said the father before. He is a musician and a Sufi, which is an is a branch of Islamic mysticism and he teaches this and he travels the country. He travels the world Mm -hmm. teaching this. So her father was born in Baroda in West India and left the country to introduce Sufism to the West. He met his future wife Mm -hmm. while he was lecturing in San Francisco. As one does. As one does. You go there, you do a little yoga, you go see an Indian mystic, you end up married, you have a kid in Russia, Bob's your uncle, everyone goes, I'm so happy. It's a normal Tuesday. We call it, we call it Tuesday. Sufism, that branch of Islamic mysticism, emphasizes the renunciation of worldly things and emphasizes a purification of the soul and a mystical contemplation of God's nature. Okay. During World War One. The family moved to Paris and then to London, where Noor's three siblings were born. Three. So she was born this in Russia. She just gave birth everywhere. She just, just traveling, having babies. 
hanging out with her you musician maybe- royal Indian husband, who's like, I just do yoga. It's cool. You would think that maybe she would just kind of maybe name her kids after the, the cities or countries that she gave birth in. Oh, this is Paris. I'm not against it. The family returned to Paris in 1920 and eventually settled in Sorhen, west of the city. Her father, Ilyanat Khan, died while on a pilgrimage to India. Oh, no. With her mother overwhelmed by grief, Noor, at just 13, was left to look after the family. As a young girl, she was described as quiet, shy, sensitive, and dreamy. Even as she managed the house, Noor wrote short stories, dedicated poems to the family, and enrolled at École Normale de Musique de Paris. She also studied child psychology at the Sorbonne and music at the Paris Conservatory under Nadia Bullinger, composing for harp and piano. She sounds like she took a lot after her father. It does seem that that way, way, right? Yeah. After finishing school, Khan produced an English translation of the Jakarta Tales, fables about the previous incarnations of the Buddha, and established herself as a writer. Her book, 20 Jakarta Tales, was published in 1939. Khan escaped to England after the fall of France in November of 1940. So World War II has began. Mm Mm-hmm. France falls. She's not comfortable being there. Her and her family escape back to England. And there in England, she joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And as an aircraftswoman, second class, she was sent to be trained as a wireless operator. Upon assignment to a bomber training school in June of 1941, she applied for a commission in an effort to relieve herself of the boring work there. Able to speak French, she was quickly chosen to go to Paris to join the Special Operations Executive, a secret British organization set up to support resistance to the Germans from behind enemy lines through espionage and sabotage. She was recruited to join the SOE as a radio operator and was the first female radio operator to be sent into occupied France. She can listen to everything and translate everything. I'm sorry. Prior to her, all female agents were sent behind enemy lines only as couriers. Mm -hmm. Khan had worked hard to overcome her fear of weapons during her combat training and improved her ability to translate Morse code. But colleagues in her intelligence network still had doubts. They wondered if she was too young, too inexperienced. The ultimate exercise in her training was a mock Gestapo interrogation intended to give agents a taste of what might be in store for them if they were captured, and some practice in maintaining their cover story. Oh, fuck. Her training officer found during her interrogation he felt that it was almost unbearable and reported that she seemed terrified, so overwhelmed that she nearly lost her voice, and that afterwards she was trembling and pale. They pointed out that she carelessly left codes lying around and that she had unthinkingly revealed her British background, by pouring milk into cups before the tea. English tea, yeah. That's how I take my tea. They also questioned whether she had the right sensibility for the job, having been raised under Sufism, a mystical form of Islam. So, like we said before, Mm -hmm. very passive, nonviolent. She was described as not being overburdened with brains. She was said to have an unstable and temperamental personality. And it was very doubtful whether she was really suited for this field of work. 
Khan had been staying at the country house in Buckinghamshire, where she and other agents were there, where they had a final chance to adjust to their new identities and consider their missions before departure. A female companion there told their commanding officer that Khan had descended into such a gloom and was clearly troubled by the thought of what she was about to undertake. Then two fellow agents staying with Khan in the country house had written to Vera Atkins, who was their commanding officer, to say that they did not feel she was ready to go. Vera Atkins, who was the chief intelligence officer for the F section, which is the French section, said that she really truly believed that Khan could do it, that she was ready to join the resistance in Paris and cut her training short because she felt she was ready to go, no matter what anyone said. Vera's like, no, she's ready. She can do it. But the truth of the matter is the reason why she felt she was so ready to do it was because she speak fluent French. The reason they really wanted her there was because she spoke French. She spoke French. And she didn't look British. So she was a huge asset. So regardless of all of these... the only thing that gave her away was the way that she drank her tea. Right. And regardless of all these things that sort of people were like, she seems really... Like, she's not doing great. I don't think she's going to make it. Like, this... She doesn't seem like she's ready. Like, no, 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 no. She's ready. But Atkins wasn't completely dismissive of their concerns. Before she left, she decided to meet with Khan. And just get an idea of how she was feeling. Vera Atkins wanted to confirm that Khan believed in her own ability to succeed. See, she felt that confidence was the most important thing for a secret agent. Her intention was to let Khan feel that she had the opportunity to back out gracefully, if that was what she wished. She said, I'll arrange everything so that there will be no embarrassment. You will be transferred to another branch of the service, and no adverse mark will be on your file. We have every respect for the man or woman who admits, frankly, to not feeling up to it. For us, there is only one crime, and that is to go out there and let your comrades down. So she brought her to a cafe. I was just like, hey, girl, if you can't do it, I get it. We'll fix it. You don't have to go. If you go, you're going to let everyone down. But if you go, you need to fucking man up. But... Khan insisted adamantly that she wanted to go and was competent for the work. Her only concern, she said, was for her family. And this was what Vera had suspected all along. Since she was kind of the primary caregiver Mm -hmm. after her father's death, it made sense. Khan had found saying goodbye to her widowed mother the most painful thing she had ever had to do. And lying to her about where she was going and what she would be doing was needlessly cruel. Khan requested that if she go missing that no one tell her mother unless they were reasonably sure that she was dead. She did not want her mother to worry unless there was definitive information. This was different than the standard protocol, which was to send doing well letters throughout an agent's tour and to immediately make a family aware if they went missing. Atkins said that she would agree to this arrangement if that's what she really wanted. And with this assurance, Khan seemed content and confident once more. Any doubts in Atkins' mind were also now apparently settled. So for her trip to France, there are two ways that an agent can arrive. They always arrive by plane. And they can do so either by being dropped by parachute. Classy. Or sent in in small planes that would land in fields and then be met by members of the resistance. Oh no, parachute. Jump out. Good life. 
Apparently, she was not trained for parachuting. Who is? No one really. Just. I mean, you've done it. Yeah. I'm. Strap it on. Just fucking go. Every part of me wants to make a joke, but I won't. Um, <laughs> In every aspect of your life, just strap it on. Just strap it, it on and let it go. <laughs> Khan was flown in by Lysander, a small aircraft, with only the light of the moon to land in a field near Angers. The light of the moon. The oh. light of the moon. From there, she would make her way to Paris to link up with the leader of the Prosper sub-circuit, Emil Gary, and then make contact with the Prosper circuit organizer francis sutil so she once lived in paris though right yes for many years i'm going to re-say so, all of this because i messed something up from there she would make her way to paris and then make contact with the prosper circuit organizer francis sutil so she used to once like she lived in paris right she lived like, in paris for a good long time she went to college there yeah, so she, she, she knows there it from... she knows it in and out yeah Backwards, upside down, sideways. But th- is that also dangerous? Is she going to run into people that she of course. knew? Or, yeah. Of course. The resistance group Prosper was organized by Francis Alfred Sotil, who was an SOE agent. Khan arrived and took on her new persona as a children's nurse, Jean-Marie, Jean-Marie Renier, using fake papers in that name. But to her SOE colleagues, however, she was known simply as Madeline. The purpose of the SOE was to conduct espionage, sabotage, and reconnaissance in occupied Europe against Axis powers, especially Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Khan's mission would be an especially dangerous one. So successful had female couriers been that the decision was made to use them as wireless operators as well, which was even more dangerous work. Probably the most dangerous work of all. The job of the operator was to maintain a link between the circuit in the field and London, sending and receiving messages about planned sabotage operations or about where arms were needed for resistance fighters. Without such communication, it was almost impossible for any resistance strategy to be coordinated. But the operators were highly vulnerable to detection which was improving as the war progressed. Hiding themselves as best they could, with aerials strung up in attics or disguised as washing lines, they tapped out Morse code on the key of the transmitters and would often wait alone for hours for a reply, saying the messages had been received. If they stayed on the air transmitting for more than 20 minutes, their signals were likely to be picked up by the enemy and detection vans would trace the source of these suspected signals. When the operator moved location, the bulky transmitter had to be carried, sometimes concealed in a suitcase or in a bundle of firewood. It's very heavy. Yeah, they're so, big, they're bulky. Yeah, so this woman's like lugging around this thing. Not suspicious at all, especially with a false name in a town that she lived in for a while. But not even that. At this point, these... These women are being used because they're drawing less suspicion than men. Yeah. So. And you would actually think that it'll be opposite. Yeah. You know, you would think that the women I know. would be like more like, oh, what's this lady doing? Yeah. You know, a woman walking down the street carrying a bundle of firewood. That's You feel common. bad for her because yeah. you're like, oh, my God, nobody is there to help her. She no, doesn't no, have a husband but, but or a man. Yeah. And they, 
you almost look away because you don't want to think about no. it. Yeah, you like, see a woman oh, carrying a heavy Spencer. suitcase and you don't want to you don't want to help, so you don't so you look away. Mm-hmm. If the operators were stopped in search, the operator would have no cover story to explain the transmitter. In 1943, an operator's life expectancy was six weeks. From being what? Oh, wait, hold on. So <laughs> six weeks from being on location, yeah. setting up, moving. But they're saying six weeks because they are going to be found because they're carrying these large cases or six weeks because after they've done their job, they are then executed. Six weeks because they were going to be found by the enemy. Got it. If they were using the aerial in an attic and they stayed on for 20 minutes and 10 seconds and they're found. But it was a highly, highly dangerous job. The, The point that I'm trying to make is how incredibly dangerous this job is. Within 10 days of her arrival, all the other British agents in Khan's network had been arrested. SOE wanted her to return to Britain, but she refused, saying she would try to rebuild the network on her own. She ended up doing the work of six radio operators. She moved constantly to evade detection and dyed her hair blonde to avoid being recognized. She knocked on the doors of old friends, asking them to use their homes to send messages to London from a wireless network that she carried around in a bulky suitcase. So that's a good thing about her knowing Paris is that she had friends. But she also... But it's also a bad thing because she has friends. She has friends. But she put her friends in danger. But they also probably were willing to be put into danger because they're in Nazi-occupied France. That's that's true. They're like, do what you gotta do, girl. Just... As long as you're like 20 seconds or less, out. In and out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Her work had become crucial to the war effort, helping airmen escape and allowing important deliveries to come in. Her transmissions became the only link between the agents around Paris and London. In October, Khan was betrayed by a French woman and arrested by the Gestapo. Some believe that she was paid to betray her, and she did so out of jealousy. It was at the time that she was packing up to return to England on October 13th, 1943, that she was arrested. She was interrogated in Paris. During that time, she attempted to escape twice. Hans Kiefer, the former head of the SD in Paris, testified after the war that she did not give the Gestapo a single piece of information, but lied consistently. She had unwisely kept copies of all her secret signals, and the Germans were able to use her radio to trick London into sending new agents straight into the hands of the waiting Gestapo. Using this information, they were able to continue to send messages posing as her. This could have been because her security courses were cut short. But regardless, London did not realize that these messages were not from Khan, even though she was said to have a very distinctive style that abruptly changed and no one noticed. So through everything I read, it seemed like the way that she sent messages was very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changed very abruptly when she was caught and the Germans started sending messages pretending to be her. But no one noticed. They just kept trucking along and sending more agents into France just ready to be scooped up by the Gestapo because they were actually the ones who were planning their landings. It was not until word was sent through another source to London that Khan had been captured and that they should suspect any further transmissions from her that they finally stopped sending more agents. On November 25th, 1943, Khan escaped the SD headquarters in Paris along with fellow SOE agents 
John Renshaw Starr, and Leon Fay, but was recaptured quickly in the vicinity. Unluckily, there was an air raid. Unluckily, there was an air raid alert as they escaped across the roof. And regulations required a count of prisoners at such times, and their escape was discovered before they could get away. Oh, no. After refusing to sign a declaration renouncing future escape attempts, Kahn was sent to Forsheim Prison in Germany, where she was kept in chains and in solitary confinement. Nor Inayat Khan was classified as a highly dangerous prisoner and shackled in chains. Are you serious? She was shackled in her hands and feet were shackled 24 hours a day. Highly dangerous. As the prison director testified after the war, Khan remained uncooperative and continued to refuse to give any information on her work or her former operatives. Although in her despair at the appalling nature of her confinement, other prisoners heard her crying late into the night. However, by the ingenious method of scratching messages into the base of her mess cup, she was able to inform another inmate of her identity, giving the name Nora Baker and the London address of her mother's house. Despite repeated torture, she refused to reveal any information. Noor Inayat Khan was abruptly transferred to Dachau concentration camp with fellow agents Yolanda Beekman, Madeline Damerment, and... Elaine Pluman, and at dawn on the following morning of September 13th, 1943, the four women were executed by SS soldiers. Khan was 30 years old at the time. The last word that she reported to say was liberté. She was awarded the George Cross and the French Silver Star for bravery. And in 2011, 100,000 pounds was raised for a bronze bust of her to be placed in central London, close to her former home. It is considered to be the first British memorial to a Muslim and Asian woman. It is said that when she wrote children's stories, that many of them carried the theme of sacrifice, almost as if she foresaw her own martyrdom. And that is the story of a princess, a spy, a writer, and a musician. But most importantly, that is the story of a woman overlooked, that is a story of Noor Inayat Khan. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring. <laughs>